The Marvel Cinematic Universe has taken over the movie industry, so much so that we all now fall into one of three distinct categories. The first type of person is a form of a movie lemming. Individuals like myself who are perfectly fine with every single big blockbuster leading directly into one another without ever achieving a conclusion. We are even fine with being forced to watch lesser properties such as She-Hulk in order to understand each and every nuanced easter egg. The second category of person resembles an old man ranting into the wind from his porch about how Marvel has ruined independent movies, destroying your precious childhood memories about how good small-budget filmmaking used to be and how uninspiring the Marvel model remains. The third type of individual is blissfully living their life, as they gave up caring about the MCU a long time ago. If you're one of those in the latter category, bear with me. I won't tally too long on this subject. This year's biggest Marvel blockbuster was the fourth Thor movie. The God of Thunder has long been my favorite character within the MCU. I enjoyed the first few movies, despite the fact that the director sought to backdoor Shakespearean themes and dialects into the story. The budding romance between Chris Hemsworth and one of my favorite actresses, Natalie Portman, was enough to keep my attention. But like most MCU fans, it was the third installment that hooked me as a fan. Helmed by Taika Waititi, Thor Ragnarok flipped the character portrayal on its head and re-envisioned Thor as a good-natured, but slightly out-of-touch god of thunder. Within the first few minutes of the movie, it became clear that Hemsworth was significantly better at comedy than he was at Shakespeare and Ragnarok immediately became the best-received movie in the MCU. The adventures of Thor continued with the Avengers before he returned in Thor Love and Thunder. The summer blockbuster was massively hyped. After all, the same directing and writing team was attached, Natalie Portman was returning to the franchise, Christian Bale was making a return to the comic book world as a god-butcherer, and the prior movies had established a character arc that left plenty of room for growth. Despite all of this, the movie has been widely regarded as a disappointment, securing one of the worst audience scores within the absurdly successful MCU. I tend to be one of those who don't follow the trends, and I found myself loving the movie, which remains eminently rewatchable, despite a couple of legitimate flaws. The difference in opinion has been widely explained by the lengths that the director went to insert comedy into nearly every scene. The result was that many individuals who loved Ragnarok became angry that Thor had become a walking joke, rather than an all-powerful and honorable warrior worthy of worship. I didn't have that reaction, and part of the reason why my viewing was so different is that as a history teacher, I know how absolutely crazy most mythological stories are. Even better, I know how absurd Viking mythology is. Thus, when others saw annoying screaming space goats on the screen every 15 minutes, I saw the actual goats in the real Thor's story. Those goats happened to be regularly eaten by the Norse god 
when food was unavailable during his quests. After they were consumed, the God of Thunder would revive them so that they could again pull his chariot the next morning. The rule of thumb, though, was to make sure you never broke their bones. Otherwise, the damage to the beasts of burden would be permanent, something that Loki, the trickster god, regularly exploited within the historical Viking stories. The point is that I imagine that Thor's goats, who regularly were butchered and eaten by their master, only to be revived and enslaved again the next day, would be quite insane. And thus, probably would scream to high heavens throughout a movie based on their lives. The MCU has succeeded in bringing together Earth's mightiest superheroes. One of the closest equivalents occurred in 1066, where an English knight fought a cunning Norman and Viking king to determine once and for all who would rule England. Today's episode is largely focused on one of the Vikings' greatest warriors, a king named Harold Hardrada. But to understand a Viking lord, one must understand the peoples of Scandinavia and the myths that drove them. So join me as we unveil the next character of our 1066 saga. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the second of five episodes regarding the life of William the Conqueror. Episode 2, Harold Hardrada, The Man, The Viking Myth, The Legend. First, I would be remiss to not make a note about mythology and religion. We use the word myth when we believe that we are able to either disprove or deny a religious belief. The ancient Greek pantheon involving Zeus, for instance, is now commonly referenced as mythology, namely because we can climb Mount Olympus without finding any evidence of the gods. We also discovered that the only reason that the giant Zeus statue at Olympia shook with rage was because the 10,000 rats that lived inside occasionally got spooked and immediately scrambled all at once. The silliness of the stories today, though, doesn't mean that they weren't entirely believed back in the day. Thus, all of the stories of Zeus transforming himself into a cow in order to improperly seduce the women of Earth allowed those who became pregnant due to extramarital activities to claim supernatural intervention in order to avoid the wrath of their husbands. The deeper you go into Greek mythology, the more you realize that Zeus and his Olympiads are quite deserving of the ridicule that they receive in Love and Thunder. Of course, we can't actually prove religion. We can historically prove that Jesus existed, for instance. But we can't tell you that he for sure multiplied the loaves and fishes, or whether or not he actually cured the blind and lame those stories fall into the category of faith, something that you believe is true, but can't prove one way or the other. 
One day, Christianity, as well as the other main religions of our world, may all fall into the category of myth. With students looking to find hilarity in stories about slaves magically parting a sea, naked people talking to snakes by an apple tree, and Jesus magically smiting another tree just because he was hungry. Of course, there are some things that we can already laugh about regarding Christianity, such as an earlier linguistic translation of the Bible, which had Jesus wandering around the desert for 40 days, looking for booty. They have since changed that word to treasure, which after hearing the first wording still gets a bit of laugh from my freshmen. Viking mythology serves to answer the why regarding the basics of what we know about the loose confederation of peoples known collectively as the Vikings. After all, it's not human nature to be as obsessive with raping and pillaging as the histories make them out to be. These ocean explorers seemed devoid of human attachments not even caring for their own kind, as raiders were regularly left behind in order to go berserk in a kamikaze-like suicide mission as their mates sailed towards the next conquest. But before we disprove some of the myths about these peoples, let's look at two of those mythological stories. First is the tale of how the world came to be. The second regards how the Vikings access the afterlife. Both stories are covered quite hilariously in the Thor franchise. Vikings believed that out of the vast nothingness came two lands, one foreboding dark and cold perpetually filled with frigid ice and lingering fog. The other was a land of fire, a land where demons and giants walked the earth choking on the soot and smoke that inevitably follows the lava as it devours everything in its path. Between the two lands, the water of the world's eleven rivers came and formed an enormous wall. Until one day the fire grew so hot that the partition of ice that separated the two realms began to ooze. As the exterior of the ice wall dissolved, the water slowly began to take on the characteristics of a humanoid giant named Mir. One imagines that it must be quite boring to be the only giant living in the gap between worlds. Mir, therefore, spent most of his time sleeping and the more he slept, the more he dreamt. Eventually, these dreams manifested themselves as his fever dreams, and he began to sweat profusely. And eventually, that water formed two more giants, including the world's first female giant. Now at this point, you might be thinking, man, if these three giants discover tennis before pickleball, they are going to sweat so much that they'll overpopulate the world. But it was at this point that the giants figured out that they could, as Viking North mythology informs us, quote, put their legs together in order to spawn new family members. With mates, Nier's night terrors came to an end, 
and his family of four began to thrive, largely because of their giant cow, Arhumbla. But if you've heard the tale of Jack and the Beanstalk, you know that the sudden appearance of a cow is just a gateway to an even larger and more fantastical tale. In this instance, the giant cow happened to be licking an ice block, when strange things began to occur. Little hairs began to appear in the ice that Adhumbla had licked away in order to sate her thirst. The next day, she lapped up a little more, and a head began to emerge. Still, the tenacious cow licked on, eventually freeing the body of Buri, the first of the gods. Amazingly, there isn't yet a prequel story for how Burry ended up trapped within a salt block of ice in the gap between worlds that had formed out of the vast nothingness. But just as the story of how Mad Mardigan, the world's greatest swordsman and womanizer of the Willow franchise, ended up in the cage that Willow discovered him in, it needs to one day be told. It was Burry and his brood, including his son Odin, that enacted the genocide of the giants, waiting for sweaty Mir to fall asleep before sneaking up and tearing him limb from limb so that he would stop populating the world with more giants. The violence that followed was so absurd that the blood of the original giant flooded the earth, drowning the rest of the giants in the ichor of the first. But don't feel too badly for them, as two managed to escape into the mist in order to begin anew. As the blood washed out the time of giants, it began something new. Dragging Mir's body into the gap, Burry and his crew of gods formed the oceans, rivers, and lakes from the giants' liquids. His flesh became the land that resides beneath our feet. His bones were rearranged to form mountains the spine of our world, populated with the giant's innumerable teeth, which became what we know as rocks. Mir's hair was untangled and spread out across the land, becoming grass and trees before Odin plucked each eyelash in order to form Midgard, the abode of mankind, Middle-earth. But even after such a monumental task, these gods did not rest dragging the brain out in order to make the clouds before enclosing it all within the skull of the giant. Sparks were grabbed from the land of fire in order to create the stars. It was only then that the gods departed for Asgard, a home designed for themselves. Because who would want to live within the bowels of a sweaty giant? Imbued with overpowering feelings of love and happiness at what they had created, they even forged a new home for the last two giants that had been hiding out in the mist. As one might imagine, this process took considerable amounts of time, and while the gods were figuring it out, the entrails of the slaughtered giant began to smell, attracting vermin from deep within the ground. Soon worms were crawling on the entrails, feasting on the remains and metamorphosizing into what we know today as dwarves. Rather than being shunned, four of the dwarves were sent to the corners of the earth in order to hold up the sky, 
while the others became the metalworkers and craftsmen of the world. Soon the sun and moon were born of travelers to and from Midgard via the Bifrost, what we know as a rainbow. But the gods punished two of the travelers for arrogance by pinning them to the sky, ever able to look down at their homeland, but never allowed to walk it again. Each is pulled night and day by a chariot, chased by the wolves of treachery and hate. The moon is the slightly slower of the two travelers, resulting in it being bitten a little more each and every night before being reborn to its full brilliance so that the suffering can continue again. One morning, as the sun was racing against the wolf known as Hate, Odin walked the beach and formed humans. First a man from a fallen ash tree, and a woman from Elm. At this point, you might be like me, thinking to yourself that the inclusion of Bao, the god of the dumplings, who's portrayed with an anime emoji face in Thor Love and Thunder, doesn't seem so strange after all. The second mythological story that is pertinent to understanding the craziness that seems the Vikings is their understanding for how to achieve eternal life and happiness. Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Sikhism, and a number of other major faiths that remain active within the world today teach that being a good person is key to achieving a place in heaven. Thus, believers are incentivized to help others less fortunate than them and uphold the moral standards of the age. The poor on earth are granted the promise that they will be rich in heaven. The incentives were slightly different for the Vikings. Like most religions that delve in duality, the Vikings believed in a heaven and hell. The underworld is ruled by the goddess Hel, the villain from Thor Ragnarok. It resides in the void from which the world was created and remains cold, dark, and habitually misty. This version of Hel isn't the worst of them. In my opinion, that perhaps belongs to the Shinto faith, where Hel is just the dark land in which I imagine that you continually hit your shins unexpectedly as you shuffle about for eternity. Still, Nilfheim, as it is known, is a chaotic land filled with beasts such as the malice-striking Nidhogg, a dragon who punishes the souls of the damned. Voospa writes of the beast, I saw there wading through rivers wild, treacherous men, and murderers too, the workers of ill with the wives of men, there Nithhog sucked the blood of the slain, and the wolf tore men, I would you know yet more? By contrast, Valhalla is a version of heaven that seems to have been directly pulled from the dreams of a teenage boy. Each day in the halls of the fallen, the dead wake up to prepare for a great battle. Divided into teams of two, the men prepare their armor and weapons before assembling on the field to participate in the inevitable slaughter to come. 
At the end of the battle, all wounds, even death, are healed, and then men arise to eat together within the great hall, which has now been filled with the meat of the most delicious sacred boar, who itself is killed and reborn nightly. The warriors are also served the world's greatest mead, which is derived from the udder of the infamous unknown goat. For entertainment and table service, the Valkyrie women wait upon the men's every need. To sum up this boy's fantasy, every day they get to fight and kill before feasting and drinking, then enjoying the pleasures of subservient women. When I tell a version of this tale to my students, you see the ladies in class realizing that this patriarchal fantasy might be their own hell. Kind of like how some of us believe that a dog's heaven is melded perfectly with squirrel hell. Snorri, a 13th century Nordic scholar, reveals to us that the key to ensuring one's place in Valhalla was to die a noble warrior's death. Although I personally believe that a life without murder where one falls asleep peacefully in their bed after a long life is the way to go, the Vikings steadfastly disagree. Snorri directly identifies those who die of old age or illness as the inhabitants of hell. So why spend so much time relating these two myths? After all, we already knew the Vikings to be crazed raiders of Europe. Their longboats were the only vessels able to sail the open ocean as well as traverse continental Europe's vast river systems. This allowed them to sail past garrisons guarding the coastline in order to hit vulnerable inland towns and villages. The raiders particularly targeted churches, suggesting that they sought to exert their religious beliefs over others in some form of holy Norse crusade. The villages were overwhelmed by these berserkers who arrived from what would have seemed to have been an entirely different realm. There was no negotiation, just slaughter and destruction, quick enough that they would be able to board their ships again and sail past any garrison which finally arrived to end the slaughter. Our initial understanding of these raids were that they were smash-and-grab jobs, with the Vikings abandoning their elderly warriors who were too slow to make it back in time to the boat. These warriors were subsequently slaughtered by the arriving reinforcements as partial payback for the destruction that had come with the foreign hordes aboard ships adorned with the mythological dragons of hell. But everything has a reason. No society slaughters without a purpose. It is true that the Vikings abandoned the elderly, but it wasn't because they were too slow or had fallen asleep on an excursion and missed the return time for their pleasure cruise. Rather, the Vikings took the elderly and sick on what was known to all as their last journey an expedition necessary to earn their place in the afterlife. The Vikings institutionalized what was essentially the world's first suicide-by-cop program. 
stirring up the locals into such a blinding rage that they would immediately assault the men who had already said their final goodbyes to their compatriots before charging into the fray for one last worthy battle to the death in order to achieve a place in Valhalla. With this as the only way to secure one's place in the tranquil halls, the Norse peoples had to continually battle, even if it merely amounted to slaughter. Now they could have done this internally by fighting amongst themselves, and did that for many years. But the Vikings were a warrior society, with the best, brightest, and strongest devoting themselves to preparing for war. In many ways, they were early adopters of the Predator movie franchise, seeking to test themselves in battle against the best that other species had to offer. Thralls, or the enslaved, were necessary to maintain high levels of food production, and women were in charge of the household, finances, and regularly contributed to the farms because their husbands were constantly gone on work trips to massacre others. Raids served as an opportunity to seize others to enslave for the continuation of their cultural lifestyle. This gave the Vikings a near matriarchal society, which is odd considering that their religion is so patriarchal. Like the Mongols, another militaristic society, the Vikings used their raids as a system of commerce, including the collection of slaves. Thus, the Vikings were a fiscal military state, meaning that their rule depended upon their military in order to maintain an economy that would in turn prop the state up. The richest chiefs could afford to be the most generous to their warriors, thus attracting a higher quality of fighter who was able to bring in more wealth from forthcoming raids. The size of a chief's army was directly proportional to his wealth and success. Rather than fighting other Viking chiefs who were evenly matched, they found that European shores, in addition to the slaves that they could provide, were easier targets who were known to have more wealth, particularly within their undefended churches, which were loaded up with gold and silver. These foreign luxury goods served to bring prestige and power to the warlord, thus attracting more fighters to their banner. Incursions occurred with regularity, but as Christianity began to seep its way within Viking culture, the Norsemen began more and more to resemble traditional Europeans. The conversion of the Vikings through the French-led monastic movement was a classic example of a teacher shrugging and claiming, close enough. Rather than portraying Jesus as a pacifist who spent his life among beggars and prostitutes, the monks charged with converting the Northmen emphasized Jesus' ability to return from the dead after three days in order to smite his enemies for eternity. As proof of the societal-wide confusion, archaeologists have regularly excavated grave sites where Vikings have been buried with a Christian cross, as well as Odin's hammer, 
and enough coins to pay their way into the halls of Valhalla. Olaf Tygvason was the most significant of the Viking lords to have converted to Christianity, and for his troubles was overthrown by the nobles of Norway in 1000, devolving the nation into a confederation of tribal chiefs. As these chiefs took on more traditional European roles, they settled down to form elite trading centers and took on predatory capitalist practices. Raids were no longer needed to bring goods to their shores. One of the rules of dominating foreign trade, however, is to ensure that your distribution centers are close enough to both the manufacturers and those who demand the goods. Thus, the Vikings settled Denmark, created the port city of Dublin, Ireland, and eventually took over all of England. Canute the Great was the most prosperous and famous Viking lord of England. We detailed large portions of his story in our previous episode. The second most famous Viking king is the subject of today's exposition, Harold Hardrada. And just like the Viking origin myths, his backstory is quite spectacular, almost mythological. Harold was born in Norway sometime around the year 1015. His father was a chief of a wealthy clan near modern-day Oslo. The Vikings had already begun their cultural transformation by this point, and thus the Norway that he was born into was already similar economically and socially to the rest of Northern Europe. Polygamy was rampant in the society, creating a population boom that may have also served as a justification for so many Viking raids of continental Europe. Not surprising with how violent the culture was, Harold's mother Asta had been married once before. That coupling produced Harold's older half-brother, Olaf, named after the great Christian Viking king, Olaf Tryggvason. The collapse of Tryggvason's Norway came about one year before the birth of Olaf Haraldorsson. During his 15th year, our Olaf began to see the world, particularly Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and Holland, before arriving and settling for four years in Canute's England, before spending a final two years in French Normandy. By age 22, he had sufficient battle experience to justify his dreams of restoring the rule of his namesake. Despite the catchy song in Frozen, we do know what Olaf's do in summer, for in 1016 he was named King of Norway and immediately began to forcibly convert the Vikings to Christianity, utilizing any and all means. Mostly this meant that your eyes would be removed if you weren't able to see the truth of Christ. Paganism was forced underground by the ruler, and the Catholic Church elevated the man to Saint Olaf. Evidently, Rome approved of the methods more than the locals did, as the unpopularity that came with his missionary tactics led the Norwegians to proclaim Canute as their new king, 
overthrowing Olaf and expelling him from the nation. But Canute was already the ruler of England, Denmark, and Sweden. His attention was continually elsewhere, and after his appointed regent drowned to death, Olaf returned with an army to reclaim his throne. Among those within his 2,500-strong army was his half-brother, Harold. Twenty-two years younger than Olaf, Harold was drawn to battle the way that a moth is drawn to light. While his other full brothers dreamt of becoming farmers, raising cattle and corn, Harold loudly proclaimed as a child that it was warriors that he wanted the most in the world. Olaf was badly outnumbered in the battle that followed and was mercilessly cut down by Canute's forces. Although he was on the losing side, Harold was singled out by the contemporary saga writers for his heroism during the battle. In the confusion that followed that battle, a wounded Harold was able to crawl away after pretending to be dead in a ditch. Harold, who also dabbled in poetry throughout his life, informed the world that, From corpse to corpse I crawl and creep now, worthless. Who knows how highly I'll be Harold one day. Unable to remain in Canute's Norway, Harold fled to Sweden before making his way to Kiev, which historian Frank McLinn referred to as the Mecca of the era for exiled Scandinavians. Rather than the mindless brutes that they are often portrayed as, the Vikings were actually phenomenal at a number of things, particularly exploration, as they reached the Americas far earlier than any other European civilization. They also contributed more than 700 words to the modern-day English language, including words such as window, knife, cake, and of course, die. But if there's one thing that they are truly good at, it was fighting. Thus, cast off in a foreign land, Harold did what he knew best and began life as an exiled mercenary. For three years, he served with distinction in campaigns against the Polish peoples as well as against the Wend, a Germanic group that resided on the eastern border of the Franks. As his reputation grew, Harold was bold, even asking for the hand of the Prince of Kiev's daughter. The request was denied, with the Viking being told that he would first have to achieve real fame before the marriage would be approved. In 1034, the place to earn one's name was the Byzantine Empire. Byzantium was a spin-off of the Roman Empire that initially split along the lines that had divided the kingdoms of Mark Antony and Octavian Augustus. Utilizing the city of Constantinople, the magnus opus of Constantine, the first Christian ruler of Rome, the Byzantines controlled all land trade between Europe and the lands to their east. Beginning in the year 330 and lasting until 1453, 
the empire remains to this day the longest continuous empire in world history. The Golden Age for the empire began during the rule of Basil I, and his successor went on to obtain a territorial size not seen since the heights of Constantine and Justinian's rule. But what goes up must come down, and cracks in the Byzantine armor began to appear with the death of Basil II in 1025. Absent a transformative leader, the central government began to cede power to provincial aristocrats. Sensing weaknesses, including literal cracks within the walls of a city that had been built 700 years earlier, invaders arrived from afar to loot the riches of the empire. Asian nomads from the north, Normans from the west, and Turks from the east continually tested their resolve before the Crusades placed them at the geopolitical front and center of the world. In short, Constantinople in the 11th century was the exact place and time for a mercenary to thrive. Harold was able to enroll in the elite Varangian Guard, where he enhanced his already formidable military skills. As I alluded to earlier, we like to think of Vikings as primitive bullies preying on the weak with battle axes that require far more strength than skill. But soldiers like Harold were truly elite masters of their craft. McLinn explains that by the end of Basil's reign, Norsemen had acquired every conceivable military skill. They had mastered the art of warfare on horseback. They could fight on ground which other armies avoided, especially woodland. They were experts in nighttime assaults. They knew how to improvise field fortifications quickly or to construct dikes fortified by stakes, palisades, and advanced ditches. Above all, they were masters of the surprise attack. The historian continues his praise, telling us that the Varangians were also masters of guerrilla warfare, as well as any form of fighting of socially subversive type. Freeing slaves or enslaving freemen, always trying to divide their enemies and turn them inwards against themselves. Norsemen were particularly prized within the guard because they brought with them their own weapons and armor. They required very little training. They were known for exceptional loyalty. And they were easy to control due to their obsessive love of money. Harold would serve in this part of the world for eight long and enriching years. But Harold never forgot his home, a home that he had been forced to flee when his brother was vanquished and slain. It was impossible for the young man to forget this, considering that the Varangians had their own church located near the famous Hagia Sophia, which bore the name St. Olaf's. The most important thing to know about this portion of his life is that Harold got filthy rich as a mercenary. Although he was paid well, he figured out on his first mission that the Byzantine accounting system was seriously flawed. Tasked with clearing the sea lanes of pirates, commanders like Harold were ordered to pay the emperor 
100 marks for each ship that they encountered. The rest of the booty, if there were any, remained as their plunder. The shipping lanes were quite congested in this age. Thus, unlike Jesus, Harold didn't have to spend 40 days looking for booty. The system installed by the Emperor made sense, as it was intended to reward one for working harder. But the Emperor had no way of knowing if his commanders were telling the truth about how many ships they took on. Harold quickly seized the initiative, only reporting a few of the hundreds of ships that he captured. And not all of the ones that he sunk happened to include pirates. In addition to patrolling the seas, Harold saw the world during this time as other missions took him to the locations of Jesus' crucifixion and reported resurrection, as well as to Syria and Armenia. He even made an appearance on the Italian island of Sicily for three years beginning in 1038. At each stop, he lined his own pockets with as much wealth as he could. Meanwhile, his reputation back at home grew exponentially. Viking chroniclers wrote sagas. These stories are often quite exaggerated and always serve to paint the heroic subject in the best possible light. McLinn shares with us a portion of what the sagas of the time teach us about our subject, sharing that, in one story, while the Varangians were besieging a castle, Harold pretends to be dead. The Norsemen then ask to be allowed to bury the body within the castle. Permission is granted, and the Varangians carry the coffin to the gates, wedge them open with the heavy coffin, then their commanders rush in and slaughter the garrison. In another story, the Varangians sap and mined under a castle, come up in the middle of the banqueting hall, and then slaughter the feasters. In yet another, Harold captured some birds, tied wood shaving to them, set fire to them, and released the birds over the battlements, where they proceeded to set fire to the castle. The modern historian, of course, discounts these tales, as they regularly appear throughout different cultures, stories that the saga writers would have heard many times before. To illustrate that point, I first read about birds of flame as a siege tactic when I read a prior work of McLinn's about Genghis Khan. Thus, while McLinn downgrades many of Harold's supposed exploits, he does give credence to one of the most interesting stories. He writes about how Harold outwitted the defenders of a town unable to be taken by siege. Mocked by the citizens for their inability to make inroads, the Varangians at Harold's command responded by holding an athletics tournament just out of missile range. This went on for three days, but on the fourth, the Norsemen hid weapons under their clothes as they approached the athletics ground. The defenders, who had become blasé, appeared on the walls unarmed to watch the spectacle for a fourth day, at which point Harold ordered a general charge, which took the enemy by surprise and saw the Varangians shinning up the walls to open the gates. 
In 1040, he was promoted to the Imperial Guard with titles and honors including the casting of a gold coin struck in his name. He was one of the only men in the Empire who was entitled to wear a sword in the presence of the Emperor, and frequently utilized a whip to forcibly restrain the crowd whenever the Emperor moved about the city in procession. But as the Byzantine Empire transitioned out of its Golden Age, Harold was dragged down with it. Michael V, the son of a caulker, only lasted on the throne for four months before the mob arrested him, gouged out his eyes, and exiled him to live out the rest of his life in a monastery. Before his reign ended, Michael had purged Harold's former contingent of Varangians of all Vikings, whom this new emperor viewed as unreliable. To ensure that his orders were followed, the remaining non-Scandinavian forces within the Guard were immediately ordered to castrate members of the Imperial family who spoke aloud their reservations about the disturbed young monarch. Harold survived the purge intact with all of his facilities, but his Scandinavian heritage singled him out as an easy target. The government came for him with an abundance of accusations, which included embezzlement, spying for the Russians, murdering a tax collector, and insulting the Empress by refusing to give her a lock of his hair. At least a few of the accusations were legitimate, particularly the one about financial crimes. But the sagas definitely made up a few characters out of thin air regarding the Empress stalking our Nordic beefcake and demanding his hair clippings. He was arrested, but then freed by his old friends from the Varangians in 1042 after the uprising against Emperor Michael had begun. Again, the sagas paint a much cooler Viking version of the escape, with some claiming that he earned his freedom after successfully killing a lion with his bare hands, while others state that he strangled an ancient earth serpent. After being freed, Harold led the rioters and their burning torches directly to the tax records that would prove him guilty of fraud. After a bit of arson, it was on to the man who had imprisoned him, as it was Harold who personally gouged out Michael's eyes. Harold Hardrada was restored and once again at the height of his power, protected by a cult of personality as well as new chainmail that he had received as a present. Ensconced in Emma, his name for his armor, he cut the impression of an invincible figure within the Byzantine Empire. But then he left. Waiting till the government was distracted by an attack from Russia, he secretly purchased ships and smuggled the entirety of his vast illegal fortune back to Kiev. Now with the sagas having catapulted propaganda about his name, money bursting from his pockets, and a shiny new set of armor, the leader of Kiev assented to his daughter marrying our victorious Viking hero. At just the age of 28, Harold was the richest and most famous warrior alive. But he wasn't the only famous Viking warrior. 
And in their culture, having a famous name made you vulnerable as a target of the next warrior looking to make their own name. Sven Ethrisson was one such warrior. Sven was the nephew of Canute the Great. He's also the first, but not the last, man in our story to claim that Edward the Confessor promised to name him as heir to the English throne. Sven was named the King of Denmark in 1042, a move that was a bit of a double cross, something which greatly angered Magnus, who at the moment was the ruler of Norway. For three years, the two fought, with Magnus regularly defeating Sven, only to see the popular Danish ruler slip away at the last minute, receiving protection from his people. After one such defeat, Sven ran into Harald while hiding out in Kiev. Hearing his reputation, the King of Denmark enlisted the former mercenary's aid to resolve his conflict with Norway. Harold returned to Norway, acting as his own political envoy to negotiate with Magnus, who happened to be his nephew. Rather than work on Sven's behalf, Harold asked to be named the heir of Magnus, who responded by asking for half of Harold's fabled treasure. The subsequent refusal began a war, with Harold supporting Denmark against Norway. But the trust between thieves didn't go far and soon Sven suspected that Harold was only fighting in order to extract a more lucrative peace agreement for himself. To Sven's disappointment, however, the assassins that he sent only managed to chop up a wood block that had been placed in Harold's bed as a decoy. Double-crossed, Harold fled from his allies in order to go behind Magnus's back to form a Norwegian coalition that proclaimed him as king. As you might imagine, this act put Magnus in quite a bind. The king of Norway didn't have the financial resources to finish off Sven, but he knew that he could not fight Sven in Denmark while simultaneously holding off Harold in Norway. Thus, in 1046, he entered into a joint kingship agreement with Harold. And as one might imagine, the power-sharing agreement didn't work out as intended. McLinn describes Harold as a natural-born dictator, someone who was unable to play nice with others. It was during these years as co-king that he acquired his nickname, Hardrada, which meant hard ruler. To his friends, though, he became known as Harold the Land Ravager, as his thirst for expansion was only matched by his tenacity on the battlefield. Their time as rulers were filled with distrust that continually threatened to unravel their power-sharing agreement. For instance, civil war nearly broke out after Harold's ships had parked in a dock that was continually reserved for the king, of which he was one of the two. Magnus arrived to see someone parking in his spot and was so mad that he was willing to burn the entire city down. Harold attempted to smooth things over, unsuccessfully claiming that he did not know Magnus would be arriving before trying to justify his actions by pointing out that their monarchy contract merely stipulated that if Magnus and Harold arrived at the same time, 
Magnus would go first. Thus, because his boat was already parked, the claim was invalid. In order to keep his head attached, along with the crown that adorned it, Harold was forced to embarrassingly move his boat so that his co-king could park closer to the reception hall. As one might imagine, two years into their co-ruling agreement, Magnus was found dead in what was considered to be unusual circumstances. The histories are unclear about what happened, with some claiming that he fell ill, while others pushed a story that a fall from a horse had felled him. Or, perhaps, he had drowned. It was widely alleged that his last wish was that Sven, and not his co-ruler, should replace him on the throne, something that Harold openly scoffed at, claiming that it was the work of Sven's propagandists. After all, the Danish Viking had also claimed that Edward the Confessor had promised him England. At age 32, Harold was now the sole ruler of Norway. For the next 15 years, he and Sven would continuously raid each other, neither able to finish off the other in a continuation of Magnus' feud. Unbeknownst to them, however, the two sides of the dispute were being steadily manipulated by King Edward of England. For if either Viking was victorious, surely England and the restoration of Canute's empire would be their next task. During his 20-year reign in Norway, Harold strengthened the central government, established far-flung trade routes with Iceland, and bound European families to his through dynastic marriages. But his criminal instincts never went away completely, as he dispatched anyone who challenged his authority, even betraying and sacrificing his own brother in the middle of a battle with Sven. This even extended to threats who were not yet of the age of needing a razor. Harold himself stated for the record, I kill without compunction and remember all my killings. Treason must be scorched by fair means or foul before it overwhelms me. Oak trees grow from acorns. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown, for as much power as he accumulated, Harold never reached the level of acclaim that had been afforded to Canute. As the long war with Sven dragged on, Harold came to the conclusion that the only way to surpass the legacy of Canute would be to duplicate the man's feats. Soon control of England began to factor into the forefront of his thoughts and actions. In what had been unimaginable to the non-Viking world, he made peace with Sven in 1063, one year before reaching his 50th birthday. On January 5, 1066, Edward the Confessor passed away without an official heir. On his deathbed, the King of England whispered to Harold Godwinson that the throne was his. Across the English Channel, William heard the news and immediately stopped his hunt and began to ready his forces, clinging to the belief that he had been promised the throne. So what was Harold doing at this pivotal moment in history? 
He was in the process of hearing out Tostig Godwinson, the brother of the newly crowned King of the Britons. Tostig had a falling out with his brother and had gone on a diplomatic tour, first to Normandy, then to the courts of Sven's Denmark, before finally reaching the halls of Harald Hardrada. It was here that the poison of promises reached the Viking warrior's ear, activating a number of the seven deadly sins that lay close to the surface of Harold's heart. Tostig appealed to his pride and greed, reminding Harold that he had a claim to the throne through his relationship to Magnus, who had been promised England by Hartha Canute, the son of Canute. Envy was immediately activated, as Harold had long sought to surpass the legacy of Canute. In his lust, he failed to see the dangers that Tostig posed, as the young man claimed that he would be merely content as an Earl of the North within Harold's English court. Promises were made. If he were to invade, the remnants of Vikings from Canute's days would rise up to back him against Godwinson. After 15 years of trying to kick the football that was Sven Ethrasen's face, only to have his final victory pulled out from beneath his feet, Tostig presented an image of an England that was ready to crumble. All Harold had to do was open the door in order to unleash his warrior's wrath. It was this lie that England was rudderless, which would lead Harold on his last voyage. He sailed at the head of an armada that ranged somewhere between 200 and 1,000 ships laden with an impressive army that numbered somewhere in the range of 12,000 to 18,000 Viking warriors. It was a massive show of force that included fierce housecarls, mercenaries, as well as trained war horses. They began the invasion by ravaging the coastline of Scotland annihilating the inhabitants of Cleveland and Scarborough before embarking to conquer York. The boats landed, and Harold took his first step on the soil that had made Canute the greatest Viking of all time. But it wasn't to be, as it was on this first step that the King of Norway stumbled, falling to his knees in front of his It was the clearest sign yet that what was to come next would not end in Hardrada's favor. And for once, the signs were right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, Please look in the show descriptions for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.